Good morning. My name is Evan Hendricks. I am uh, one of the pastors here. And this morning, get the privilege of uh, sharing with you some of what God's been putting on my heart. Um, but to begin with, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Alana, for reading that passage. That is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But first, uh, I thought I'd share with you guys a little bit about uh, me and who I am and why I'm up here to share with you uh, today. So unlike most of the room, if I had to guess, I actually was born in Central Oregon. Um, born and raised, grew up in Prineville. Did I get a woot-woot there? Well, yeah. Born and raised in Prineville, Oregon. And um, if you have spent much time in Prineville, you will realize very quickly that what the town rallies around in so many ways is the sport of wrestling. So at the age of five, being a boy, uh, the choice wasn't hard. Our basketball team was notoriously terrible, and the wrestling team was always really good. And so to be a part of the wrestling program was to be a part of just more than a team or more than a sport. It was this, it was this community that you were invited into of, that had a tradition of not just success, but a tradition of being something that the town rallied around, something that the town loved. Uh, it was really where Prineville found a lot of its identity and does to this day. Their program continues to be really really tough. And so I spent, um, I spent much of my life wrestling all the way up through college. And the interesting thing about wrestling is, um, well, there's a couple of things that are interesting about it. Uh, it's one of those sports that's just kind of one-on-one, -on -one, right? Not really a team sport. I always liked that because I didn't like relying on anybody else, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Wrestling's great for that. The other thing that I really loved about wrestling was it pulls you into this really intimate relationship with food. Right? So anybody that knows anything about wrestling, you spend all week like working hard, sweating, and, and, and working as hard as you can to be able to get down in weight so that you could hit a certain weight class. And the beautiful thing is once you step up on that scale, and for me, in, in, in much of high school, I, was, I wrestled 171 my senior year. And so you step up on the scale and you see it, 171, and you step off real quick. I made weight. And then what? You eat. <laughs> and it was like our goal, like how much can we eat in the short amount of time? Because he had to wrestle pretty quick. So um, wrestling for, for most of my life created this, a little bit of a love-hate relationship with food because you had to deny yourself for much of the week. But then at the end of the week, when you'd make weight, you got to gorge. And then after the tournament, like talk about knowing how to binge eat. Like you go out to Red Robin and we get not just the burger, but the burger with the egg on it and a couple slices of bacon. And if you got some cheese, yeah, throw that in there too. Hash browns? Yeah, whatever you want, just put it on there. We love to eat. Wrestlers love to eat. Um, and so for much of my life, I was in this very, very close, intimate relationship with food. And so coming out of that, out of college, into the working world, uh, I, the whole plan was to get a degree in history and then become a teacher. That didn't quite work out. I actually fell in love with, uh, it was kind of a combination of home brewing and uh, this high-end grocery store that happened to be in the town that we lived in called Nugget Market. 
And I just fell in love with the specialty foods, all the cheeses and the beer and the wine and the, the specialty artisan breads and the salamis and like all the best food, right? As a wrestler, I had denied myself much of that for my life. And so I was like, indulge, let's just go for it. And so for a couple of years, I worked in Nugget Market uh, and, and worked in the specialty department. And then when we moved up here to Bend, landed a job with Whole Foods Market. And Whole Foods, like for me, became this place that was the epitome of all things delicious, it really, truly is. Like, I don't, if you shop elsewhere, that's fine. I'm, I'm not up here to tell you where to shop. But for me, it became an eight-year journey of learning about the intricate details of food, where it comes from, how it's grown, where it's produced, what all the different varieties are. And one thing I love about Whole Foods was they did a really good job of uh, celebrating the seasonality of food. So the produce department would flip over literally every couple of weeks. It was like, strawberries are in season now and then blueberries and now the huckleberries are coming and then we're into apple season and pears and every time you walk in it was just like a different experience a different bounty of goodness to enjoy so when pete said evan what do you want to talk about uh ken and i are going to be out of town we're going to give you a chance to step in i said food <laughs> right <laughs> so this morning that's what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about food and the first thing I want to talk about is essentially, where are we in our relationship with food? What is food to us? We live in a very uh, outdoorsy, very athletic, um, very active community, right? So food to a lot of us is fuel. Literally, like on the package, it'll say like power bar, right? Doesn't tell you how good it is or even if it's good. I think they're terrible. Um, but it says what it is. It's fuel. It gives you power, right? Protein shakes. It's not a milkshake, it's not delicious, right? It's supposed to make you stronger, it's supposed to make you healthier. So for, for a lot of us, food is fuel. For some of us, food could be brand loyalty, right? Like what's the soda that LeBron's drinking right now? Like that's, that's the one I wanna drink because LeBron is my hero. And so if I wanna be like LeBron, if I wanna be affiliated with all of his success and goodness and celebrity fame, then I need to drink that soda. So food becomes that brand loyalty or even uh, identity in a sense, right? Like where we shop sometimes, the bag, the grocery bag we're carrying around town, that could be tied to our identity a little bit, right? Some of us engage the world of food as entertainment, right? Anybody watch Food Network? Does Food Network teach you how to cook? It used to. It doesn't anymore. Food Network is all about entertainment, man. Like eating competitions and like Triple D, right? Who doesn't like Triple D? Guy just cruising around eating the best food that he can find at just these diners and drives and dives, man. It's amazing. But food for a lot of us becomes this, this entertaining thing. So much so that today, this is a statistic today, we actually only spend four hours a week preparing food, Americans. We spend more time watching food be prepared and be consumed on television than we do doing it ourselves. Four hours a week works out to 11 and a half minutes a meal. That is some fast cooking, man. That's amazing. Some of us hit up food for political reasons, right? And being at Whole Foods, I was immersed in a lot of it. Organic, sustainable, fair trade, biodynamic, local, right? Food becomes a means of what do you believe about the world? And how we shop determines how how we think other people ought to live. And so food in a lot of ways becomes this political affiliation. I don't shop there because they're not organic. I don't shop there because they're a big box store. They're not local, right? 
Probably the number one relationship, the most popular relationship that we have food with food, specifically for us as Americans, is convenience. Right? Fast food? Anybody? No? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fast food. Convenience. Right? How fast can we eat it? How cheap can we get it? Is it ready to eat? Can I microwave that? Americans love fast food so much that last year we spent $200 billion on fast food. And 20% of the food that we purchased, we ate in our cars. 20% of fast food meals are eaten in your car. That's how, that's how much we value convenience when it comes to food. So you can see that as a country, right, there's a lot of reasons why we love food, why we're obsessed with food, fuel, entertainment, political, convenience. And I don't think it's a bad thing that we're obsessed with food, but I do wonder if we have the kind of relationship with food that God would have intended. When food is fuel, we see that the number one concern, the agenda there, is my health. The point of eating that food, consuming that food, is so that my health is better. With status, we're talking about my image, right? What do I look like? What do, what do people perceive me as when I eat or drink this food? Entertainment, just my happiness, my pure entertainment, my happiness, right? That's what food is for. It's supposed to make me really happy. Politics, my agenda in the world, right? How I shop determines what I think about all of this, all of you, all of me. Food can become about my agenda. And finally, convenience, the one that I think hits, hits home with me the most is uh, when I approach food as convenience, we're talking about my time and my money, right? My money. I don't think this is what God intended. I really don't. And so we're going to look, what was God's design? Alana read that passage earlier out of, uh, out of Genesis. And I'm just going to kind of touch on a couple of points from that. Um, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. So we're created in the image of God. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in, it, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And he goes on and on and saying all of these things he's given us. And the, the beginning of the story is all of, all of creation, all of the universe that God has created. And at the end, he pronounces it what? Anybody remember? Very good. God's created all of this, and he calls it very good. And then he puts man, humans, in the midst of it to do what? What is our role in the midst of this good creation? Well, in verse 26, it says to let them have dominion. So we're supposed to have kind of responsibility or ownership of some kind. In, in chapter 2, it goes on to say in verse 15 that God places Adam in the garden to work and to keep it. To work and to keep it. So the logical question there is should we not all just be, be like shepherds and gardeners, have a dominion, Right? have a flock of sheep and a nice big garden that we care for, and we're all shepherds and gardeners, having dominion and working and keeping our gardens. It's a little bit confusing because later on 
In the story, in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve choose to eat of the tree of knowledge and they fall and they break relationship with God, what is their punishment? In verse 17 it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That feels a little confusing to me. At the beginning it says we're created to work and to keep, and then the punishment is to work and to keep. The interesting thing there, and this is where more and more I'm realizing that English is amazing, but we ought to go back to the root words and find out what it is exactly that the original writers are talking about. What is God trying to tell us through his word? When it says God put Adam in the garden, when he placed him in the garden, that word, that Hebrew there, Hebrew word translates to God's safety and rest. So God creates all of this goodness this bounty of delight and provision, and he puts Adam in the midst of it because it is safe and so that he can experience rest. A little bit different than working and keeping. The Hebrew phrase for work and keep is actually translated to worship and obey. Very different than working a garden, right? I was talking to Ryan this morning, he came in to help set up, and he said he spent five hours yesterday weeding their new garden, their land. That's hard work. That doesn't sound a whole lot like rest or safety, and maybe could be seen as worship or obedience somehow, but somehow I don't think that's what God's intention was here in the garden. Safety and rest and worship and obey. So if we're supposed to obey, what is it that God invited them to obey? With obedience comes a commandment, right? We have to be told to do something if we're going to obey it. So what is it that God said? The first command from God is in chapter 2, verse 16. Right after he says that he placed him in the garden to work and keep it. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God puts us in this perfect paradise, puts Adam and Eve in this perfect paradise, perfect creation, to rest, to be safe, and then to worship, and then the obedience is you have to eat freely of all that I've given you. It's starting to sound a little bit like one of those all-inclusive resorts, right? You just go out, chill out, get to the pool, you put your sandals down, you lay your towel out, and then what? You rest, right? You're in a safe place. The whole, the whole atmosphere, the whole design of those resorts is for you to just chill, to relax, to rest, to enjoy. Like, I almost expect the next line in the, in, in the word to say, like, and then they swam up to the swim-up bar and ordered some tacos. You know what I mean? Like, all-inclusive resort. This is what this feels like. But what is the point of all this safety, all this resting, all this eating? What is God's hope for man in this? In verse 28, he says, be fruitful and multiply. So God creates all of this goodness. It's safe. It's restful. My desire is for you to worship, and you worship by obeying me, and you obey me by eating freely 
And the hope is that you flourish in the land. Be fruitful and multiply. Flourish. But I want to dig a little bit deeper. Why food? Because he could have given us any command, right? He's God. He could have said, he said, he could have said I just want you to lay around in the grass all day and just enjoy the beauty of it. But he didn't. He said, eat. What is it about eating? I don't know about you guys, but for me, eating is a fully sensual experience. And by that, by that I mean we use all five senses, right? You see food, you taste it, you touch it, you can hear it, you can smell it. We can all think of these experiences that we've had, right, with food, being in a garden or a restaurant or mom's kitchen or wherever. But for me, like when I start thinking of these things like the sight of food, the sight of like ripe berries on a vine, if you guys have been up to Hood River before, you cruise up there around this time of year and there's berries just like just drenching the vines. My wife and I were up there last year and we spent hours on the roadside just picking blackberries that were just exploding. Like you couldn't even hardly touch them because they just burst with juice and they were so beautiful and vibrant and rich. Food is beautiful to look at. How about the, the rich taste of like a, I'm a medium rare guy, medium rare steak, Right? There's that new restaurant in town, Bos Taurus. I don't know if any of you guys have been there yet. I haven't been there, but I've heard about it. The whole focus is steak. They're a steakhouse. Literally, you order a steak, and it's just meat on a, on a big white plate. Like, they're not messing around. We're not serving any. It's a steak. But they do it perfectly, from what I've heard. But that taste, right, that meaty, rich, salty taste of a medium-rare steak. Or how about the feel of a ripe peach in your hand? That's like one of my favorite summer moments. You get that peach and it's just like, it's, you're like, this is so much heavier than it's supposed to be. This is just bursting with juice. And then when you put it to your mouth and you bite into it and all the juices just like run all over your face, right? That's like summer in a bite. It's amazing. The smell of onions and garlic caramelizing in a pan. Who likes that one? Right? Like onions and garlic sweating. Like start any meal that way and I'm there. Or how many of you guys have been in a Mexican restaurant and the waitress brings by that plate of sizzling fajitas? It's like, and you're like, I'll have one of those. That, that's what I want. Because food is sensual, right? If we actually take time to sit down and eat good food and use all of our senses, it captures all of it. I do think this is what God's saying here. I created you to eat food. And I also created you with all of these senses. And if you do it as I've designed, it will capture and encompass all of it. Raise your hand if you have a memory tied to food. Right? Like most of mine are tied to food. Like if we're going to celebrate, we're going to eat. Just period. But food is a big deal to God. And I think he, he designed it to be fully sensual. So we see that the creation, food specifically, is an invitation to sensually dine on God's goodness. Think about it. Sensually dine on the goodness of God. To love God is to fully enjoy his goodness with all of our senses. So what does this look like? I know we all have memories, but for the sake of kind of like putting us all on the same page, I wanted to show you a clip real quick from a show that is quickly becoming my all-time favorite. It's called Chef's Table. It's on Netflix, but it just tells the story of these chefs. 
and their journey with food and how food has shaped their lives throughout their life. And this guy in particular is a, is a chef named Alan Passard, and he's a French chef, which that just gets you right there because the French accent is just so beautiful. But in this clip I'm going to show you, I just want you to really pay attention to the language, to the facial expressions, to his relationship with the food and the people that help him prepare it. Nos jardiniers sont des, euh, sont des artistes dont on ne parle pas assez. Le topinambour, c'est bon. super. Ouais. Ouais. Comme fruit au sol. Hein. Ouais. Bah, T'as vu ce qu'on en boit On en ramasse. Hein. On les passe, hein. on les passe, on les passe deux, trois ouais. fois par semaine. Ah ouais Ah bah oui. Je les ai jamais vus aussi calmes que cette année. Aujourd'hui, mes jardiniers sont également mes compagnons de route, mes partenaires de vie, sont eux qui me permettent au quotidien d'avoir cette cuisine de fraîcheur. C'est eux qui me permettent d'avoir cette créativité. Parce que la racine, c'est le produit. Tu viens voir, t'as vu les péchés, un des péchés, tiens, là. Il y a un peu plus d'une dizaine d'années. C'est pareil, on est passé hier pour faire tous les plateaux au restaurant. Hier, on a tout ramassé, tout ce qui avait par terre. C'est des trésors, hein C'est fou. Hein Oh là 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 Et toi, tu te fais une belle tarte tatin oui. avec ça C'est monstrueux. À nous, justement, jardiniers et cuisiniers, de définir un espace de façon à ce que la qualité du légume soit à son maximum. On a effectivement dans ces deux potagers une chance, une chance fantastique, c'est d'avoir des différences de terroir. Hein, on est très sableux dans la Sarthe, très argileux dans l'Eure. Et en fonction de ces différences de terroir, on parvient à positionner effectivement le légume qui correspond au terroir. On va l'essayer le, dans les deux jardins, c'est-à-dire un navet, planter le même jour à la même heure, récolter le même jour à la même heure. Quand je fais ma dégustation, j'ai deux navets différents. L'histoire, elle est très simple. C'est presque une, une histoire humaine. La qualité d'un légume, c'est son confort. Est-ce que l'air va lui correspondre Est-ce que l'altitude va lui correspondre Et tout est important. Il faut qu'il se plaise. C'est comme, comme un être humain. Les jardins sont des sources d'inspiration. Fantastiques pour la créativité.
What do you guys think? Would you want to eat at his restaurant? Like, there's a lot of things I could talk about with that clip. Like, I literally get, like, full body chills watching that kind of stuff. Probably not the same for all of you. But um, for me, that's a picture of a man who delights. Not just in the creation, but in the invitation to participate in it. To have relationship in it. What did he call the gardeners? Anybody catch that? Artists and companions. When was the last time you thought of a gardener as an artist? We have some amazing gardeners in our midst, and they're truly artists. And they ought to be our companions, because they have much they could teach us about the creation and the beauty and the intricacy of it. What did he call the peaches? A treasure. When was the last time you walked up to, and picked up a peach off a of ground, and you're like, this is a treasure? But I think that's what God is inviting us to see in the story of the creation. He's saying, this is my treasure. This is my bounty, the full vision, the fully sensual experience of my goodness can be found in a single bite in a peach. And I think that's what Alan's getting there. How about the piece of like, it's simple. It's like the human mystery. For a vegetable to be the best they can be, it must be what? Happy. Like, he's talking gospel. That's what's amazing. I have no idea what this guy believes about anything other than I know where he stands with food in respect to how he cares for it, how he cultivates it, how he invites the people that do the same into relationship with him. And then the whole point of it is to give it away. He's a chef. He's doing all of that to give it away. It's probably not cheap, but still. Delight. I think that's what, I think that's a taste of what God intended. And the beautiful thing that we see with Alan is that the delight pulls him into what I would call right relationship. Right relationship with the soil. Right relationship with the vegetables. Paying attention to this grows different in this garden as this one. Right relationship with people. So much beauty there. So the interesting thing with Adam and Eve, right? They're placed in this garden. The full provision of God's bounty and delight is at their fingertips. And God says, I just want you to eat my goodness. I want you to eat it all of it. And what's the one thing he says? He said, there's one tree that you can't eat from, right? The tree of knowledge. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, sure, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God says, all my goodness, Oh my goodness, but there's one tree that you can't eat from. So you guys all know stories well. What happens? They eat from it, right? Once the second you say you can't have it, what do we do? I go, I want that. Just like kids, right? You can't touch that. And they immediately go, touch it. We're the same. So I'll read you the story real quick of the fall in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack there, but for the sake of this morning and our conversation on food, we're going to focus specifically on that line where it says, when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. How did God describe his goodness? How did he describe all of the trees? In verse 9 of chapter 2, and it says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Period. So Eve saw that it was good. She saw the goodness of God because she saw that it was pleasing to the eye. It was a delight. And she also saw that it was good for food. But what did she do? She added to that, and she said it's also desirable for gaining wisdom. God didn't say that. God said it's a delight to the eyes, and it's good for food, period, full stop. That was his design for Adam and Eve. I've created all of this with my words for your enjoyment. It's the full provision of my bounty and goodness. I want you to delight in it, and I want you to eat it because it's good for food. That's it. But Eve does what? She adds to it. So she took God's purpose and then she added her agenda to it. You guys see that? So the question that God posed in the garden to Adam and Eve was I've created all of this goodness and the purpose of it is your delight, your health, your flourishing, and the beauty of it is I'm here with you. This is perfect communion with me, God, your creator, your father, the one who loves you, who desires that you flourish. The point of the garden was perfect communion with God. Unfortunately, what Adam and Eve chose was their own agenda. They added to what God had said was good and pleasing to the eye. Alexander Schmemann puts it like this. The world was given to man by God as food, as means of life, yet life was meant to be communion with God. It had not, not only its end, but its full content in him. The world and food were thus created as means of communion with God, and only if accepted for God's sake were to give life. Thus to eat, to be alive, to know God and be in communion with him were one and the same thing. The unfathomable tragedy of Adam was that he ate for his own sake. More than that, he ate apart from God in order to be independent of him. And if he did it, it is because he believed that food had life in itself and that he, by partaking of that food, would become like God, i.e., have life in himself. To put it simply, he believed in food. World, food, became his gods, the sources and principles of his life, and he became their slave. What do you think God's response ought to have been to this? Like, what is a parent's response? I'm going to give you this good gift. I want you to enjoy it, to delight in it. And they go, nah, I don't really want that. I want that. Well, I told you, you can't have that. Yeah, but I want that, Dad. <laughs> like, God, he's like pulling his hair out. Like, come on. I gave you all of this goodness. And you passed on it. You passed on communion with me, perfect communion. 
The interesting thing here, and this is what I love, love, love about our God. He continually pursues us. As Josh said last week, God is a pursuant God coming after us. And so what does he do? In his perfect grace after the fall, after we've broken relationship with ourselves, with each other, with the creation, and with God, God sends himself into the world. He says, I'm still coming after you. And in that, we get the incarnation of Jesus. God sends his son to live among us as the full representation of his goodness. This is just 2.0. We're going to jump into the New Testament real quick. Into the book of John, chapter 6. Read a few verses out of that. This is a picture of Jesus when he's fully engrossed in his ministry and he feeds the 5,000, right? The feeding of the 5,000. Again, we're talking about food. And we got 5,000 people following after Jesus for a lot of reasons probably, but I'm going to guess that one of them is because they were hungry and this guy knows how to make food out of nothing. In this day, they were being taxed up to 90% of their income. That's what the Roman government was taxing. That leaves 10% left to feed your family. So if this guy comes along who can make food, yes, sign me up. I also got a family of four. Can I bring them? Sweet. So this is the picture we get in John. Jesus in front of all of these people, and he's fed them. And in verse 32, it says, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So in 1.0, in the garden, God gives us food. Literally, eat this and enjoy my bounty and my goodness. We pass on that. Sorry, God, we're, we need some wisdom along with, with this. Delight and good for food isn't enough. We need a little bit more. So God says, okay, I'm coming for you again. And in his grace, he sends his son Jesus to be what? The bread of life. That's what Jesus calls himself. He just gets done feeding all these people. And then he goes, that, that nourishment you're enjoying right there, that's me. I am the bread of life. So the logical response is what? Jesus, you want, we're supposed to eat you? Is that, the, I, just give me the fishes and loaves, man. This is getting weird. You're the bread of, this doesn't make sense. But in Jesus' final moments with his disciples, what does he do? Luke 22, verse 19, he's at the table in the upper room with his disciples the night before he's betrayed. They're in the midst of this meal where they've been dining and in verse 19, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in essence, what God is doing here is he's cutting out the middleman. He's cutting out the creation essence, and he's saying, Eat me. I'm giving you this bread. This is my body. This is my blood. Eat me. 
and it's only in me that you will find life. Have you ever thought about that? At the, at the communion table, God is inviting us to come eat him. What is the hope of that? What is the hope of Jesus saying, when you, when you remember me, do this. When you come to the table and you eat, what is he, what is he doing there? This is the beautiful thing about God, right? He created us, so he knows how we work. We're creatures of habit, right? Like all the things we do, we do because that's what we do. We're habitual creatures. That's why we like routine, why we like knowing what's going to happen because it's easy. It's how we operate. We're creatures of habit. I think, I think Jesus knew this, and I think the invitation is to habitually dine on Jesus, I think Jesus is saying, I need you to form this as a habit. Jesus' invitation to the table is to form the habit that we remember every time we eat, that it is not the food that gives life, but it is him, Jesus, that is the provision, the full bounty, the full representation of all of God's goodness is in the person of Jesus, and that's why we come to the table. I think Jesus knew this. I think this is what God is saying here. He's saying the one thing you need to do to survive as humans is eat food. That's it. If you, if you stop a human from eating, we die. I think Jesus knew that. And I think he's saying every time you take food and you put it in your mouth, I need you to remember me. And the full scope of what that means. What is it, remem what is it to remember Jesus? It's a lot. It's what we as Christians claim to orient our entire lives around, the person of Jesus. And Jesus' invitation to us is saying, I've given you a place to come and form a habit. And the habit is that every time you eat, every time we enjoy food, this good gift of God that we would remember God, Jesus. Now this is, a little bit interesting and a little bit weird because the Eucharist, right, the communion table, is the physical act. But what's the irony with, with consuming Jesus? The irony with consuming Jesus is that to consume Jesus is actually an anti-consumption because to consume Jesus is to be consumed by Jesus. To follow Jesus, what does he invite people to do? Anybody? Die. Die to what? Die to self. That is anti-consumption. Jesus is saying to come to follow me, to consume me, means you have to die to yourself and you have to be consumed by me. This is the only place, this is the table where we come to be eaten. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Yeah, this is the table. This is what's unique about this table. We come to this table to be consumed by Jesus, to learn to habitually dine on the person of Jesus that we might be formed, that we might die to self. That's Jesus' words in Matthew 16. He says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying, deny yourself, empty yourself, give up your agenda. Stop making this about you. It's about me. Here's the irony. Jesus made himself food for us that in the consumption of him, we might be consumed and become food for the world. So what happens if we actually do this, if we actually are consumed by Jesus? How does it reorient our posture towards food? Well, let's start with ourselves, right? Because in the fall, we broke relationship four ways, with ourselves, with each other, with the creation, and with our Father. So with ourselves, how does, how does being consumed by Jesus reorient our pursuit of food? Literally, our pursuit of food. We're talking about food here. I think Jesus would say the best food is the healthiest food. It's the food that's good for you. Like, I don't think that's a reach that when God gave us the garden, when he gave that picture of his goodness and he placed his goodness in the midst of food, I think he's saying, I want you to eat the best food. And guess what? The best food, the most nutritious, the most delicious, the most life-giving, the food that had the most life, that's actually good for you. So if we eat better food, we are healthier. So ask yourself, the next time you sit down to eat, when you go to lunch after here, is this food I'm eating, what, is this the best God would have for me? Am I eating the best of what God offers? What happens with our relationship to each other? Well, you, the unique thing about food is that it's grown. It's produced, it's cared for, it's stewarded, it's distributed, it's packaged, it's cooked, it's delivered, it's stocked, and it's all sold by what? It's not chimpanzees, it's humans. We are the ones who do all of that work. For who? For each other. That's how grocery stores work. They're, they're stocked and run and everything in it is grown and produced by humans so that humans can eat it. It's a human-to-human -human relationship. And so if, if we're reorienting, ourself, reorienting ourselves around Jesus with food, then our relationship with each other ought to be, I want the healthiest people growing the healthiest food. I want the best people growing the best food. And by best, I mean those who are living into God's goodness, those who are experiencing God's goodness. So I ought to care as a follower of Jesus, I ought to care about where my food's coming from. What are the hands that have handled it? What are the hands that picked the berries, that picked the fruit, that picked the vegetables? What are the hands that stewarded and shepherded those sheep, those cows, those chickens? How are they living? To be consumed by Jesus is to reorient our relationship towards one another and to have that restored because as followers of Jesus, we ought to care about the person that's selling our food to us. With the creation, I felt like Alan showed us an incredible example of what that looks like. The best food comes from the best land, period. 
Soil is living, it is alive, it is teeming with all kinds of nutrients and everything that has died goes into the soil as life to be resurrected into new life. The best food comes from the best soil. The soil that gets the best water, the soil that gets the best access to sunlight, the soil that gets the best care. So the question we have to ask ourselves when, when eating or purchasing food is, were the land, plants, and animals treated as God's provision? Did this life enjoy the fullness of what God intended? I feel like most of us have probably seen that Portlandia clip, right, about the chicken, Colin? If you haven't, go look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. But these two, these two diners come into this restaurant in Portland, and we've all seen them, right? And they sit down, and the waitress comes over and says, hey, what do you guys want to order? And they're like, well, we're really interested in this chicken, but can you, can you tell us a little bit about it? And she's like, well, it's organic. It's uh, fair trade. Uh, it's pasture-raised. Uh, and then they go, well, like, can he, like, move around with his friends and stuff? Like, just, does he have a good space to hang out in? And the waitress is like, actually, you know, I have his paperwork. So she goes and gets the paperwork on the chicken, and she's like, this chicken's name was Colin, and uh, it says here that Colin lived at Aliki Farms, and on Aliki Farms, Colin roamed around, and goes on and on, and then the, the diners go, you know what, actually, we're going to go check it out for ourselves, because we want to make sure that Colin had a good life, and as crazy and silly as that sounds, I do think there's some truth in that. Like, we ought to care about the food that we're eating, not just for our sake, not just for the sake of the people that are stewarding it, but for the sake of the food itself, for the sake of the animals, the life, because that is, in the beginning of the Bible, that's God's representation of his goodness, his food. We should care. And the beautiful thing about all this is that when we reorient our lives toward these ends, caring about our own health, caring about the health of each other, caring about the health of the creation, that is a picture of loving God with all of ourself. That is a picture of giving away of my agenda, myself, for the sake of the other. So in the doing of all this, we're pulled into right relationship with our creator. To love God is to love what God loves. And at the end of creating everything, he pronounced it very good. That's a loving statement. God loves his creation and he desires for us to love it. This is the agenda that places God at the center of the picture. And the invitation is that we die to our agendas. We die to ourself. Food shouldn't be fuel. It shouldn't be status. It shouldn't be entertainment. It shouldn't be political. And it certainly shouldn't be convenient. I believe the story that God's laying out here is that food is an invitation to live into right relationship with everything I've given you. And in doing so, in living as Jesus lived and being consumed by Jesus, we live into right relationship with our creator, communion. One of my favorite books that I just got done reading and literally I recommend it to everybody that asks and if you want to read up on more of this, it's called Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating. My kind of book. So from it, Norman Wurzba, the author, says this. For a life to be full, it must be given away. To live well, which means to, to learn to receive gratefully the gifts of others, 
requires that we also learn to die well by turning our living into a gift for others. Why? Because that is the most fitting acknowledgement of the gifts of life sacrificially given and our most faithful way of participating in God's own self-offering life as revealed in Christ. That's the most fitting acknowledgement of those gifts is to care for all of it and in the process of caring to give our lives away to be consumed by Jesus. So the interesting thing about this story of creation, um, and one of the things that I just find continually fascinating about the Bible is that for a long time it was easy for me to put that creation story of Adam and Eve in the past of just going, that's what happened, that was the fall, and that's why we experienced sin. And yeah, that, that is what the story tells. But the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it continues to be relevant to today because the question that I believe that we are posing today is the same one that faced Adam and Eve in the garden. There's a tree of life, Jesus. And there's the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil, self. So when you eat, do we eat Jesus or do we eat self? So this morning, as we come to the table, I know for everybody it's a different experience. For me, I can speak to the last couple of years receiving communion here and receiving communion in our communion group around our table in an intimate setting and to be serving each other communion. It has become habit. And I used to think that I really knew what I was talking about with food, that I really loved food. But the invitation with food from God is to see past the food and to see the creator who is sustaining, who is giving, who is generous, who extends grace over and over and over again. So my hope for us, my hope for you is that when we come to the table, that we would recognize that Jesus' invitation is to form the habit, to eat Jesus and therefore be eaten by Jesus, to be consumed, that we might die to self and experience life to the fullest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching our hands in forth in love, may bring those who do not know you to a knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name, amen.